0: Alright, right, First Peter chapter number 1, I want to begin reading in verse number 3, we'll read down to verse 9 and then we'll have a word of prayer over these requests and, uh, and ask the Lord's blessing on the service. First Peter chapter number 1, verse number 3, the Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this opportunity that you've afforded us to be together in your house. Lord, the requests that have been given tonight are so large, are so vast, are so beyond our human means and capability uh, that only could we take them to an almighty God But I want to praise you tonight, Lord, and I want to thank you that we have a God that we can take these things to that is interested in our lives, that is uh, interested in the things that trouble us and burden us and the things that we desire and long for. And so, Lord, we bring these requests before you tonight. We know that uh, by faith we are taking these things into the very throne room of heaven And that our great intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, is taking these prayers made fit by the Spirit of God and is offering them before you. Lord, we know that His intercession is so perfect, is so meticulous, is so unbroken, is so instantaneous that as the words fall from our lips, they fall into your very ears in heaven itself. So we ask, Father, that you would meet these requests and these needs according to Thy will, knowing that You know better than us, Lord, what we need and how we need these things. And Father, give us the patience and give us the faith and give us, Lord, the, the confidence to trust You in these matters, knowing that You'll handle them in the best possible way. Pray that You'd be with the preaching tonight. Uh, may the Lord Jesus be lifted up. May we see Him and Him alone. And Father, may we gain encouragement from Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think 1 Peter chapter number 1 is probably one of my favorite passages in the Word of God. It is a an ensemble of powerful and profound statements that pile up on each other. I don't know if you sensed that as we read it, but it's like Peter just uses these great truths as stepping stones as he is uh, more elevated and, and more transcendent in what he is describing for us. It's like he steps on these truths and climbs into the very heavens themselves and describes for you and I our glorious situation in the Lord Jesus. Christ. And every statement that he makes, it's like it just opens the door into even greater and grander truth. In the midst of this passage, however, uh, we find that there is a sober and arresting statement that is made concerning our present circumstances. I don't know if you noticed it, but as he is describing this, uh, this glorious salvation that you and I have partook in through the Lord Jesus Christ... He says concerning that salvation that we presently have, that in the midst of that salvation, as we rejoice in our salvation. How many of you are glad to be saved tonight? As we rejoice in that grand and glorious salvation, He notices for us, That though we may transcend into heavenly places, spiritually speaking, we still must live in this sin-broken, sin-stained world that is occupied with problems and trials and difficulties. And he says in verse 6, wherein, he means in that salvation that we greatly rejoice. We rejoice in that salvation, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, as He is climbing to the glorious heights of heaven, the Ken, it's like He pulls us back down to earth and reminds us that though we are rejoicing presently in this blissful, amazing salvation, we are doing so in a broken world that we're traveling through. I think that dichotomy is stark and is arresting when I notice it because it's a reminder to us that, listen, no matter how bad it gets down here, everything's all right up there but that no matter how good it is up there, and how many of you know, we can read the book of Ephesians about those heavenly places, and we're reminded it is good up there. We are seated together with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. No matter how good it is up there, it is still quite broken down here. And it is in this dichotomy that He encourages us to certain behavior in this world that we're living in. He talks about these manifold temptations. He says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then here's what he tells us to do. He says, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, that is the best part, isn't it, Brother Ted? I want you to notice three things with me tonight out of this passage that I think may be an encouragement. And I gave a title to this message, and and uh, I, I don't know that it. I believe it's descriptive, but I don't weigh too much on the title here. But I I titled the message tonight "Facing Hardship with Hope," because I really think that's what Peter's talking about. He's saying we have a a blessed hope. We have an an inheritance incorruptible. He, He talks about this lively hope that we have living with our head in the heavenly places, but he reminds us that our body is down here on the earth and how those two realities communicate with each other. First, I want you to notice with me, and I'll go ahead and tell you the three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the context of our hope. You know, hope is of no value if it does not exist within pressing circumstances. In other words, if things are all right, you ain't got no reason to hope. You hope, brother Charlie, because things are not how you wish that they were. And so you live with hope and hope is a potent thing. And then I want us to notice the comfort of our hope. Because in the midst of this passage, he talks about some hard times that we experience. But each of the things he says about those hard times are, are, are tinged. They are tempered by certain glorious truths. And then I want you to notice in closing the confidence of our hope. What does hope produce in us? What does it cause us to do? So notice the first thing, the context of our hope. Look at verse 6. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice." Though now for a season, Peter says, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now that word temptations there, and I'll say a word about this more here in a moment, but the word temptation in your Bible can be used in one of two ways. Sometimes the word temptation is used uh, meaning the solicitation to do evil. And then there are other times that the word temptation is used uh, when it means a trial of our faith. And I don't think we have to look far to find out exactly which kind of temptation he's talking about here because he says in verse 7 that the trial of your faith. Can I use a word that might be real familiar to you and I? And it's the word problems. Peter says we live in a world filled with problems. We don't have to look far and I'm not going to waste... Uh, valuable preaching time cataloging all of us, but you can turn on the news, you can look around you, you can walk around this world and see we live in a world with problems. And try as we may to not allow these problems to touch our lives. And I don't know about you, but that's been my strategy for the past few years, is just to try to keep the world's problems from touching my life and my family. But here's the reality. Try as we may, you and I are going to have our share of trials. I notice how he describes these, and I think it's important that we note that there is no temptation that has taken us, but such as is common to man. That we're dealing with problems that though they may be unique and proprietary in the specifics of them, the very character of problems itself is something that ever since mankind sinned in the garden has been something that we have dealt with. And notice how he describes them. He says in verse 6 that we are in heaviness through manifold Temptations. Notice the pressing of our trials. As I said a moment ago, I I try to keep the world's problems from touching my life and my family. One of the most frustrating things about our current situation in this world is it seems like so much of the world's drama you can't get away from. I mean, try as you may. You just can't get away from it. It reaches out and touches our lives and affects the way that we live. And I I love the way that Peter, uh, through the Holy Ghost, describes uh, the problems that we face. He describes them through a heaviness. It's a reminder to me that the very danger that is inherent in the problems we face is not the external pressure that they apply, Brother Ken, but it's the internal pressure. It's the fact that we let these things weigh us down. Now, can I tell you something? You and I, we can't avoid facing problems in this world, but we can determine how we face them. And we can determine in our heart through the promises of God and through the instruction and counsel of Scripture and through the power of faith that though we may face problems, I'm not telling you you ain't going to have health problems. I'm not telling you you ain't going to have financial problems. I'm not telling you you're not going to have relationship problems. Very likely, if you live in this world more than about two seconds, you're going to face each and every one of these things. But you and you alone can determine how much weight you let that place upon you And how much you choose to put upon the shoulders of an everlasting God. James exhorted us to cast all of our, Peter rather, exhorted us to cast all of our care upon him, for he careth for us. We can take these problems and place them squarely on the shoulders of God. And in fact, that's what Jesus encouraged us to do. He said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What does it mean to be heavy laden? It means you got things pressing down upon you. Now, I understand all the context of the Old Testament law and the type of burdens He was talking about, but I don't think that is confined exclusively to those that were under the yoke of the law and trying to work the way to heaven. I think He he said, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Not just folks with these kinds of problems or folks with those kinds of problems. I don't know what your definition of all is, but I can tell you what mine is, and it's all. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. And He said, I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, he said, and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus said. He said, take those heavy things off your shoulders and put them on mine. And take my light burdens and put them on your shoulders. He said, let's exchange these things. Because the Lord Jesus understood as our Creator that we are frail, as the psalmist said, that we are but dust. And He understood how easy it is for the weight of life to press us down not saying you can escape the problems, but I am saying these problems can be an opportunity to lean heavier upon the Lord, more effectually upon the Lord, to pray about these things and to seek for God to lift these burdens off of us and to place them in His providential care. Hey, listen, you understand, if you're saved by the grace of God, then the God of glory, the the eternal God, the infinite God, the, the omnipotent God, the God that has the power of all heaven and all earth, the God that created, Everything is your father. And you can talk to him and you can say, Father, I I'm struggling, I'm way down underneath these things. Lord, I need you to I need you to take this pressure. Off of me. So he uh, he describes the pressing of our trials, and then he uses an interesting word. I it, it's found about three times, or it speaks of three things in scripture. I believe it may be found once or twice more than that, but but it speaks of about three things in scripture. It, it, it's look at this phrase. He says, "Wherein ye greatly rejoice." Verse six. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. And why are you in heaviness? Through manifold temptation. There are three things described as manifold in the Bible. The uh, transgressions, Brother Ken, are described as manifold actually in the book of Amos that we've been studying. And then uh, temptations or trials are described as manifold here in the Word of God. And then the purposes of God are described as manifold. And then thank the Lord that the grace of God is described as manifold. I'm glad there's grace for everything we face, aren't you? I'm glad no matter how many problems that the world, the flesh, and the devil can scoop up and throw at us, there are manifold graces to meet each and every one of those. For His grace is sufficient. It is sufficient. But here we have it described of our problems that we experience. And the Bible calls them manifold. Now, typically we think of a manifold, and a manifold is essentially anything that, that uh, takes a singular entity and divides and distributes it to other places, or anything that collects a uh, variety of various sources and funnels them into one place. And it's a reminder, Brother Charlie, to me that usually when our trials come, they don't come in singles. We get the double pack. I don't know about you, I, I feel like sometimes I buy my troubles at Sam's. Where it comes in a in, in 144 count. <laughs> our, our problems rarely come just one at a time. They're manifold temptations. Uh, and the more you live in, li- in, in life, the longer you live in life, I don't know if we notice it more. I don't know if we just, as we get older, we get tireder and, and, and we just feel it and sense it more. Somehow when you're young, I guess you get fixated on singular things and singular issues in life. And maybe it's just that life gets harder as you get older. I don't know which is true, but I know that the longer you live in this life, the more you tend to notice that rarely are you battling one thing at a time. How many of you wish, and you don't have to raise your hands to this, but you can give me a good healthy amen. How many of you wish that you could just be facing one health problem at a time? Said about six or eight. How many of you out there ever had to cancel a, a doctor's appointment because you had to go to a more important doctor's appointment? It was something totally unrelated. Uh, and you can go down the line with whatever problems we may face, but suffice it to say that we find here the plurality of our trials described for us. Rarely will the devil just attack you on one front. He's smarter than that. Rarely will the flesh just afflict you in one area. You know the flesh can tempt you through sensuality and can buffet you uh, through infirmity at the same time. Uh, Do you know that uh, the flesh can drag you down through jealousy or through envy at the same time that it's buffeting you with infirmity and tempting you with sensuality? I'm saying this, we can't expect our enemy to only fight on one front. It's not the way it works. Uh, The fact is you're going to face more than one problem at a time. And go ahead and get used to it. Uh, it's a grand and glorious lesson that you learn in life when you realize that in as much as we talk about life being fair, it's not. And most of the time you're going to have to face more than you can handle. You know, that's one of the misquoted verses in the Word of God when it talks about uh, temptations. talks about the Lord will never uh, put more on us, uh, suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able. That's not talking about temptation uh, in uh, terms of, of trials, but it's talking about temptation in terms of the solicitation to do evil. And it's saying that God will never put you or me in a situation where our only option is to sin. But never does God say He's not going to put more on you than you can handle. In fact, God says the exact opposite of that. Paul said in First Corinthians, chapter number 1, that uh, he was pressed uh, out of measure, above strength. God put more on him than he could handle. Go ahead and just get used to it in life that the reason you need hope is because without the Lord, there is no hope. And you'll face problems so big that without the Lord's help, there is no hope. We find the plurality of trials. But then I want you to notice that word that's used there. It says through manifold what? temptation. Now, I'm getting ready to sort of back up a little bit, and I hope that's okay, but I'm going to do it in a scriptural way. It's true that the word temptations in the Bible is used in one of two ways. In fact, the book of James chapter number 1 uh, displays this uh, explicitly for us. In the first two verses, or in, excuse me, in verses 2 and 3 of James chapter 1, listen to what James says. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptation. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So he says temptations is the trying of your faith, Brother Ken. He makes them synonymous with each other. He says temptations, and then he says the trying of your faith. But now down in verses 13 and 14 of that same chapter, he says this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So you see, you have the dual definitions there. In the early part of the chapter, it's a trial of our faith. In verses 13 and 14, it's being drawn away of our own lust and enticed to sin. And those two things are distinctly separate. It's important as you study the Word of God that you know which is being referenced. But can I say this? It is not wholly by accident that those two words uh, may have two different definitions to the same word. There is a connection betwixt the two. And you say, well, what is that, preacher? Are you saying when I have problems in trials, it's because uh, I'm, I'm tempted to sin? No, I'm saying when you do have problems in trials, you will be tempted to sin. There is a distinction there, but it sort of reminds me of the pitfalls of our trials. Because with every problem that arises, the devil is going to try to utilize it to take advantage to see you weakened in the faith. Uh, What God's trying to do and what the devil is trying to do are completely opposite. You understand that, right? They are at opposite uh, interests of each other. And when a problem comes into your life, God is trying to expand your faith. He's trying to grow your faith. But at the same time, the devil will try to diminish your faith and destroy your faith. I'm saying this, we better be careful when trials come. Uh, Some people treat trials as though they are some kind of sanctified immunity that they enjoy. As though a suffering person cannot be a sinning person if that person knows the Lord. But can I tell you something, in those moments of suffering, that is very often when we are tempted to sin when we're tempted to curse the Lord. It's when we're tempted to allow discouragement to have the authority in our life. It's when we are tempted very often to yield to some temptation, some illicit activity, because we feel like we are atoning for it through the problems we are facing and that surely people will understand and surely the Lord will excuse our behavior. Every bit of that is propaganda straight out of the pit of hell. The fact is, it don't matter if you and I are suffering or not, we are still to be holy. We are still to trust the Lord. We are still to grow in our. Our walk of faith understand when these pitfalls come man there's going to be temptations uh, whenever try, whenever job lost everything he had in his trials uh, it wasn't long before his friends uh, slithered up out of the swamp of criticism and out of the swamp of uh, disingenuousness and began to try to allure him away from his faith in the lord uh, they spent 30 something chapters telling him why he shouldn't trust god through this he said, "What do you mean, preach?" Well, they said, "Well, Job, this is because you've done A, B, or C, or Job, this is because you've messed up, or uh, various uh, things." And uh, the thing that Job needed to do was the thing that Job started to do. Job had said early on, "The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." He was trusting God through that, but he had a group of friends around him trying to draw him away from that dependence on the Lord. I'm saying this: every time there's a problem, uh, there's a risk. There's a pitfall. And we need to be aware of that truth or else the devil will uh, make, make hay out of our difficulties and our trials. So that's the context of our hope. Problems, pressing trials, plural trials, trials with pitfalls and dangers. How could we ever, Brother Ken, rejoice in a situation like that? Well, Peter gives us an answer. Because I see in this passage not only the context of our hope, but I see the comfort of our hope. I told you that in this passage when he's describing these problems that we have, there's little beautiful glorious glimpses of great profound truths. Can I can I point them out to you? Notice what he says. Verse number 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now, and I like these next three words, for a season. You know what he's telling us? He's reminding us that uh, our trials are temporary. It's for a season. It's just for a season. Uh, Now, you know what a season is. And and I've had this experience in life. And seasons, sometimes seasons are long and sometimes seasons are short. But isn't it funny? The world has a phrase for this. They say this, when it rains, it pours. What they mean by that is, Troubles, Ken, are plural. And usually when one starts to fall on you, there will be a whole cloud open up. The Bible gives us more descript language that we go through seasons of trouble in life. That's been my experience. I don't know if it's yours. Some of that may be a matter of perspective. We can handle problems when we feel as though they are coming individually. Very often we notice the problems we are facing when they begin to pile up. But I think the better description, the better answer, the better explanation is that God sometimes perfects us through exaltation and sometimes perfects us through abasement. Sometimes He perfects us through advancing us in life and sometimes He perfects us through suffering and trial and trouble. Don't be surprised if you'll come into seasons in your life when you just have to battle and fight and scrape and claw your way forward in your walk of faith. There are seasons that we experience, but you know the good thing about a season is there's always a different one coming after. Uh, one of the things, with Fred, I was thinking about this past week, I heard somebody make a comment about global warming. And one of the things that has alarmed me in much of the modern conversation, you've not heard a lot about the global warming thing. Uh, it's somewhat of a first world problem, admittedly so. People don't have time to worry about junk like that when they're just trying to survive and, and uh, claw their way through. And it is our It is our lavish excess that has permitted us to worry about things that we shouldn't worry about in our world today. But one of the things that has bothered me about that conversation, Brother Fred, is it is wholly and entirely unscriptural. God made a promise that for as long as the earth exists, there would be seed time, there would be sowing, there would be harvest. God promised that. For a Christian to believe that we're going to destroy the world uh, through global warming is to be rankly anti-biblical. It's to suggest that God's promise is untrue and that God's description of the destruction of this earth, which will happen one day, uh, He will destroy it and it will be supernaturally done. So it will be destroyed by fire. Some people prefer the term renovated. I'd say you don't want to be here one way or the other. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, it's to deny explicitly what the Scripture says and what the Scripture teaches. God instituted this promise. He said there's going to continue to be seasons sowing and reaping as long as the earth exists. And, you know, there's an analogy to a spiritual truth, which is that well, you, may, you and I, we may be going through a season of trouble, but guess what? There's another season coming after it. It does end. It doesn't go on forever, Brother Kent. If anybody on God's green earth ought to know the reality of that, sure enough, it ought to be people from Tennessee. Sometimes we get four seasons in a day. Amen. Some of y'all be wearing flip-flops in November and wearing big old heavy coats in the middle of April. You never know what it's going to be like around here. It should be a reminder to us that these things that we face, man, we may go through it. it we may go through it for weeks or for months or even a number of years, but there is a season coming after it. Somebody's going to say, "Preacher, I'm up in years. Well, you're just close to the best season." Because when we leave this world, we'll enter a reality where there'll be no more suffering for our experience ever again, ever again. It's just for a season. Paul said it this way in Second Corinthians chapter 4. He said, for our light affliction, our light affliction. Now, only a man that's been through heavier affliction than me would have the right to say that. You see, if, if Paul hadn't been through what he had been through and he said light affliction, we'd have said, Psh, yeah, says you, Paul, you've not been through what I've been through. But a man that's been beaten and left for dead, a man that's been uh, fed to the wild beasts at Ephesus, a man that's been shipwrecked, a man uh, that had been beaten twice uh, by a cat of nine, nine tails. I mean, somebody been through what Paul's been through. He could stand up in just about any group of us and call it light affliction. He knows affliction. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, you might say, preacher, how could he say but for a moment? He goes on to say, while we look not on the things that are seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen, brother Ken, are eternal. How could he call it light affliction? How could he call it but for a moment? Because he lived with his perspective on eternity. I don't know how long your season is going to be uh, that you go through this, but I know it is a season. One way or the other, there'll come a time the seasons are going to change. So I I'm comforted by the fact that our trials are temporary. Number two, look what he says. He says, For our uh, 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 he says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know what that tells me, Brother Charlie? It tells me that I'm only in manifold temptations if need be. None of my suffering is needless all of my suffering is necessary so not only brother larry are my are my trials temporary but they are all necessary no child of god has ever suffered senselessly never once in human history now somebody will say but preacher sometimes we bring trouble upon ourselves and god has to chasten us are you saying chastening senseless It's grievous, I'll grant you, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. You see, when you yoked up with the Lord of glory, when you made Him your Savior, when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you stepped out of the realm of happenstance and incidents and coincidence and squarely into the realm of providence and nothing in your life or mine happens by accident. It's there for a reason. Peter said, if need be. And the things that you and I face, we might might not understand the necessity of them. But there is a necessity of them. For God would not put us through them unless there was a reason. So our trials, they are necessary. But then he describes what they're doing in our life. Verse 7, he says this. In verse 6, he says, If need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that... I like that word that. I think we ought to pay attention to the connective and conjunctive words in Scriptures. He says that, saying this is why. He said it's necessary that you go through it, and here's why it is necessary. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm probably not about to tell you anything you don't already know. Undoubtedly, most folks in the house of God on a Wednesday night, you've heard 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse 7 preached on before. But can I just remind our, uh, can I stir up our pure minds by way of remembrance by exhorting you to this fact that the reason you and I go through sufferings is it is a preparatory thing. It is a perfecting thing. It is a purging thing. God is developing us in such a way that we might be more under the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when He appears. God's developing us. He's developing us. Uh, We don't always notice when He's developing us. We don't always appreciate when He is developing us. But understand that everything that you and I go through, there is reason, there is sense, there is providence behind it. And that reasoning behind it is that we might look more like Jesus. So the Bible says in 1 John chapter number 3, what are we going to look like, Brother Charlie, at His appearing? We're going to look like Him. So if He's producing in us a faith that better prepares us for His appearing, then what He's doing is making us look more like Jesus. We're becoming more like Him. More like Him. Every single day. So our trials, they are preparatory. I see the comfort of our hope. And then finally, I want you to notice the confidence of our hope. So in light of that, Brother Ken, what are we then to do? There's probably people in this room going through trials. I'd be shocked if there wasn't. And undoubtedly, everyone going in through trials in this room, all three of those statements we made are true of your trials as they are mine, that they are temporary and necessary and preparatory. But now here's the question. What do we do with all that? Well, look what he says. Look down in verse number 8. He says, whom having not seen. Now, who's he talking about? Well, he just referenced the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, what's he talking about in verse number 8 and verse number 9? He stresses the fact twice that we have not seen Jesus. Now that's true of you and I, and it was true undoubtedly of the people to whom Peter was writing. Peter had seen him. But the people he was writing to, evidently, uh, they're described as strangers in verse number one of this chapter that are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were people that had never seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh. They had never beheld Him or laid eyes upon Him. So Peter stresses this fact. But why is he stressing it? He's stressing it so that he might show in stark relief the appropriate behavior of the believer in light of our trials. In other words, he's saying, well, you've not seen him, but you love him. You've not seen him, but you believe in him. You've not seen him, but believing in him and loving him, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He's saying you've never seen him, but he's who you're looking to, and he he is who you are looking for. In other words, the first thing he denotes here is who we regard in our lives and particularly in the time of our troubles. Can I say there are times when life might get so easy we'd be tempted to feel like we don't need Him. But when problems and troubles arise, Brother Ken, we are, we are keenly aware of how desperately we need Him. So when these trials come, what do we do? Well, we fix our mind upon Him. He's the one, number one, He's the one that we look for. Peter says, you've not seen Him, but you're going to see Him. He just got through saying he's coming back. And he uses the word, and I don't think by accident, the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now I understand and you understand that the term appearing denotes not just the rapture, but it more explicitly denotes the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period when every eye will behold him and will see him. And it's saying that when that time comes and we as the saints of God return back with our conquering king, we will look upon a world that has buffeted us. We will look upon a world that is broken. We will look upon a world that we once walked through in suffering, but we will appear before that world in glory. We'll be part of that great mass of people, uh, sanctified, regenerated, and glorified, that come back with the conquering King in that day. And he's saying, that's who we're looking for. What do I do in the midst of my trials? Well, we ought to be looking for Jesus to come back. Say, preacher, it gets rough down here. Well, isn't it good that this world as it is, is not how we're going to spend eternity? We're looking for Him to come back. He's the one we look for. But not only that, He's the one that we love. He says, whom having not seen, you love. We preach Sunday morning out of 1 John chapter 4 about the love of God, the perfect love of God. I'll spare you an entirety of sermon about it, but suffice it to say we love Him because He first loved us and He shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost the love of God that we live and that we operate in. And I just think we need to be reminded when trials come, when suffering comes, the One that loves us and the One that we love and the One that is the priority and preeminent in our life. In other words, trials may be able to shake a lot of things, but it can't shake our relationship with Him. Can't shake His promises to us. Can't shake His love of us, and it should not shake our love of Him. So we see who we regard in the midst of trials, and then notice how we rejoice. He says, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, that's important. In whom? Seven times it appears in the book of Ephesians. So evidently when the Holy Ghost wrote it down, it was significant. In whom? And just about all the time they're referencing Jesus. In whom? Though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I saw one commentator wrote this down. I thought it was very appropriate. He said, you know, even an, an unsaved person can endure trials and afflictions. But only a regenerate child of God can glory in tribulation. The lost man can, can put up with it, can endure it, can struggle through it. God help us that so often we are merely getting through it. I'm weak in my flesh just like you are. I know what it is to be tempted in the midst of our problems to just be trying to get through it. But you know, we can get a lot more done than just get through it if we'll lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. We can grow through it. <laughs> we can glory through it. But here's what it's going to take. We're going to have to look to Him. Notice the rejoicing that he describes has four things that are mentioned. First is the person of our rejoicing. In whom? What are we rejoicing in? We're rejoicing in him. In him. That's what it means. In whom? In Jesus. And I'm saying no matter what else is wrong in your life, he's still good to you. And He's still worthy of our praise. And He's still worthy of our faith and our dependence. And I'm not saying you won't experience problems and trials. I'm not saying they won't be heavy. I'm not saying they won't be many. But I'm saying in the midst of all of that, He's going to be as good as ever He has been. And if we cannot rejoice in the problems that we face, certainly we can rejoice in the person that reigns supreme over them. But how do we do that? Well, he, he tells us. Notice the power of our rejoicing. What, what motivates it? What's the means of our rejoicing here? He says, in whom, though ye see him not, yet believing, Faith. It is through faith that we can rejoice in our suffering. I think very often as Christians, we anticipate that there'll be some unspoken, uh, undocumented, unrelated, glorious joy that'll be imparted to us when problems come. And I think part of the reason we struggle is because we don't sense that. Can I remind you that the rejoicing that the believer does in the midst of trials is not something that is done by feeling. It is something that is done by faith. Faith oftentimes operates in direct contravention to our feelings. We have to purpose in our heart to trust God and believe that He's true and that He's right and that He's righteous and that He's in control. Only when we're willing to trust that He is who He says He is and that He's doing what He said He'd do and that He will do what He's promised He will do will we find reason to rejoice in the midst of our troubles. If you're waiting to feel good about your problems before you praise God, you ain't going to do it. I, that's about as simple as that. If you're waiting until you feel good about what you're going through, if you're waiting until you wake up one day and say, man, I'm just thrilled to death with all these problems I got. I feel like a million bucks. Go ahead and just mark her down. You ain't going to rejoice. But if you're willing to wake up one day and say, man, I feel like death and i got problems all over the place. I can't figure out what's wrong with me and I couldn't figure out how to fix it even if I knew what it was. I don't know how to change my circumstances, but I just believe that God reigns supreme over everything. I just believe He loves me. I just believe He's got a plan in all this and I'm going to be willing to trust Him and praise Him and rejoice in Him, though nothing in my life would call for it. I'm going to by faith praise Him. I see what that produces. It produces the pleasure of our rejoicing. Here's how we do it with joy unspeakable. When we commit to trust God with our problems, He will give us joy. And that joy is not fragile. It is not precarious. It is not ready to fall over, tip over, and shatter like porcelain. It is a resilient thing because it is not predicated upon our context or our circumstances or our condition, but it is predicated upon the promises of God. We know He's always going to be right and He's always going to be the same. And so we rejoice with joy unspeakable. And then notice the product of our rejoicing, full of glory, full of glory. Glory has always, to me, been one of those words that's hard to define. I don't know if you are like this. You're smarter than me. Maybe you don't have any problem with it. But I've always, Brother Charlie, found it a little hard to really give a definition for glory that I could wrap my mind around. Uh, Glory is sometimes described almost as jubilation in the Bible. That's how saints would talk about it, getting in the glory. Amen. And then sometimes glory is described in the Bible as praise and adulation being heaped upon someone or something. In other words, we ought to give glory to God. And then sometimes glory is described as a benefit that is produced through something we experience in life. And I began to think about it here lately and trying to really wrap my mind around it. Preacher ought to know how to define words. Somebody say amen to that, and especially if he's going to use them. And if you're going to preach the Bible, you're going to use the word glory from time to time. And I got to thinking, you know, which definition is right? And the answer I've come up with is yes. Any clearer? I doubt it. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. When we determine in our hearts that He's worthy of our praise and He's worthy of our adulation, that produces in us a joy unspeakable. A willingness not to just endure life, but to enjoy it. Not just to survive this thing, but to thrive in it. Not just to muddle our way through, uh, but to minister throughout our life and to do something that counts for God. And then you know what that produces, Brother Ken? It produces a growing and blooming and blossoming of our faith uh, that causes men to look to the God of heaven and see that there's hope in Him and that there's truth in Him and that there's uh, glory and praise in Him. All three of these things, I think, are true. That when our life, we determine that we're going to believe in Him. And that belief is going to produce rejoicing. That causes a lost and dying and broken world to see something different in our lives and turn and glorify our Father that is in heaven by looking to Him for the same thing that they've seen us experience in our life. I think when we read this passage, He reminds us of how we rejoice. You got real quiet. Maybe you still don't get it. That's okay. We'll get to heaven. We'll all get it together, Brother kin. And notice what we receive, and I'm just going to mention this and be done tonight. It's probably maybe maybe the most important part of the passage, but I'm just going to mention it and close. What do we receive? He says in verse number 9 that once we do all that, that produces this effect, we are receiving the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Now, this verse is easy to misinterpret. The church of God would have us believe that what it means is if we hold out to the end and if we trust the Lord, then that will purchase to us salvation of our souls. The only problem is you got to argue with the rest of your Bible to believe that. You could make that argument, but you're going to have to throw away about nine-tenths of this book to make it. So instead, I think we ought to just try to understand in the context of First Peter what Peter's talking about. He goes on to describe our salvation. He talks in the latter verses of, of in fact, you can start it in verse 10, he says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into so when he talks about salvation he's not merely talking about the pardon and forgiveness of sins but he's talking about the whole scope of what god's trying to do in redeeming a human being in other words he's not just saying in this part of our problem we think of salvation as just god clearing the slate and giving us a ticket to heaven that's not how god thinks of salvation It's true that God does pardon us of our sins. It's true He does promise us a home in His glorious eternal presence. But when He talks about salvation, He's not just talking about salvation from sins. He's talking about the salvation of the soul. He's talking about redeeming you from the power of sin, but also from the presence of sin. He's talking about changing your life and making you like Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not just this one-dimensional you're forgiven of sins, but rather it's what God is trying to make you through salvation. Once He's trying to make us, He's trying to make us like Jesus. He's trying to produce in us a Christ-like character. And you say, how do you know that is the salvation? How do you know that is what's being described? Because that's what the realization of it will be when Jesus comes back. We'll be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. Now, we don't have to go far to figure that out. Let me just notice one little phrase here that I think will clarify it. He didn't say, receiving the beginning of your faith. What's the beginning of your faith, Brother Ken? that's the forgiveness of sins that we experience. That's, that's, Brother Fred, the beginning of our faith. We're forgiven of our sins. What's the end of our faith? Well, one of these days, uh, our faith will be made sight. We'll have no need of faith anymore. When will that be? When we're in His presence and when we're like Him. So here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, man, when we face our trials and when we look for Jesus and when we stay in love with Him and when we trust Him with our problems and when we rejoice and, uh, with joy unspeakable and full of glory, what are we doing? We're behaving and acting like Jesus, which is what God saved us for in the first place. You remember when He hung on the cross and He said, Father, into Thy hands do I commend my spirit. In other words, even in the midst of his deepest suffering, he was trusting the Lord, loving his father, calling him father and rejoicing in his control and in his sovereign providence. So notice what we have here. And I just wrote it down this way. We find the product of our faith. In other words, when we rejoice in him, the purpose of our faith is that we might be made like Jesus, the more we rejoice in our sufferings, we find the perfection of our faith. We find ourselves looking more like Him. You might say, preacher, I don't want these trials. Well, don't give them to me, because I don't want them either. I got a few of my own that I'm fighting tooth and toenail with. But I'll just tell you this, that your problems and my problems are not here by accident. They're here because God's using them to make us look more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And instead of us fighting against those problems, why don't we instead use them to depend upon Him, to look to Him, to lean upon Him, and to become more like Him day by day. Let's bow together this evening. Musician's gonna come and play. The altar's open. If the Lord's touched your heart, I I want you to respond obediently unto Him. He knows what we need. I ain't no sense in fussing and fighting with Him. Go ahead and just yield to Him tonight. Uh, he dealt with you for a reason. He wouldn't do that uh, by accident. He wouldn't do it for no reason. So if He dealt with you, will not you just go ahead and, and, and yield to Him. Come meet Him in this altar and deal with the Lord tonight. Father, I love You and thank You for this time that You've given us. I pray that You'd bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads.